You're listening to the weekly message by St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. We are a church that strives to know, love, and serve God as we deepen our faith. We worship online via Zoom and at our House of Worship in Rochester, New York. To learn more, visit us at stephensrochester.org. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. On this fifth Sunday of Easter, today we have some readings that uh, bring into some questions that I've been thinking about a lot lately because of things that are in my life. Uh, most recently this week, as I was wrestling with this, this text, you know, in my final reflections on it, um, my wife brought to my mind a, a woman who she knew I never met. She calls her Susan Auntie. And she was a woman uh, a couple years older than Jim over here to my right. Um, and she spoke into my wife's life during a period of struggle in such a way that touched her heart. And that's why I knew of this person, because uh, from time to time, uh, she, as a member of my wife's fellowship, uh, would call her as, a, as an elder and encourage her to continue her walk in the way of the Lord. So I knew of her and I knew she was a special woman. And so I was able to empathize with my wife when she shared with me the word that Susan Auntie died this week. Of course, that brings for me um, to mind Paul's writing to the church at Thessalonica, where he tells us to live as people with hope. I want to remind you of those words that Bonnie read to us. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Get that phrase in your mind. Mourn, or rather, we, we, so we, um, you won't mourn. We, I don't want you to mourn like people without hope. Of course, that implies a couple of things. One is that there's a way to mourn that is with hope and that uh, there's a way to mourn as a person without hope. And it also implies there are people without hope, right? And so I want to just have you reflect on that a little bit with me this morning. Um, and, and so a little bit of background to Paul's context and our own context today. Not much has changed in terms of ancient versus contemporary beliefs about what happens to death. We haven't actually progressed that much. Uh, there is one level of, of, of progression that uh, comes to us from Einstein and, and his special theory of relativity that I'd love to, to talk with some of you guys over, over a cup of coffee, but uh, I won't, I won't you know, bother you with that this morning. But for the most part, we are much like the ancients in the way we contemplate death. There's just a couple of camps, honestly, uh, in terms of, of, of the answers we come up with when we ask ourselves, what happens when we die? Um, one of them is the existentialist one uh, answer. You know, we die, and that's it. <laughs> or the more you know, hard, cold-hearted uh, cold one, uh, we die and then we rot. Right? We, you know, our bodies are simply consumed by the worms. And I want to mention that because that's actually something that we see in the Bible, and you'll, you'll see that in a second. Um, we die, a second one is we die and then we sleep in the realm of the dead. And so both the Greeks and the Jews had this notion of a realm of the dead in which we sleep. Uh, in, 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 in Greek, we, we refer to that uh, as Hades. You grew up talk, you know, thinking about Hades uh, as you studied in school. Uh, and in Jewish thought, there was this idea of Sheol. 
Sheol, uh, which was simply the realm of the dead. And I want to be clear that the realm of the dead was not what you and I uh, today in our popular expressions refer to as hell. The realm of the dead was simply the realm of the dead, the place where you go when you die. It was neutral, right? Um, but, but in Jewish thought, there were some, uh, there was, you know, some preferential zip codes in that, in that uh, realm of the dead that I'm going to talk about. And I'll name them here, and we're going to unpack those a little bit. One of them is a, you know, a place called Gehenna, and another one is a place called Paradise. Both of these in the realm of the dead, you know, one's an upgrade, right? Um, and then a third idea, a third concept is that we die. And then some group called the righteous, whatever that means, uh, receive spiritual bodies at the later of their death or the second coming. So in other words, if, if you die before Jesus comes, well, when Jesus comes, you would receive your spiritual body. And if you die, if you're alive when Jesus comes, well, then at that point, you'd receive your spiritual body. So that you should recognize because uh, that's what I shared with you is as Paul's understanding that he shared with us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Romans and in Philippians and throughout Paul's work, we see this understanding of his, which is very Jewish comes right from the Pharisees. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. Let's talk about paradise. There's a lot of words that we, we use when we refer to paradise. Um, uh, in, in the Bible, in your English Bibles, you will see it most often in, in a contemporary Bible described as a new heaven and a new earth. And that, that uh, another way you might talk about it is in the, the reading in our scripture today that comes from the revelation of John of Patmos where it's the new Jerusalem, you know, this, this completion of time, this fulfillment of time, right? Uh, uh, that God is making now. Now, I want to tell you, though, in particular, some, this, this passage at the very end of the prophet Isaiah that seems to have shaped Jewish thoughts. That by the time Jesus came along, this would have been his received understanding of paradise and certainly would have been Paul's and any of the Pharisees. From Isaiah chapter 66, the very last few verses, where the prophet, reflecting upon the people who've been delivered from exile, uh, and, and after having spent 70 years in, in exile in Babylon, and now they've been restored uh, to Jerusalem, um, says this, As the new heavens and the new earth that I'm making will endure before me, says the Lord, so your descendants and your name will endure. From month to month and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all humanity will come to worship me, says the Lord. So what you see there is the prophet's des description of what we see in the Revelation to John. The thing that, you know, I want us to sing someday, Revelation 19, where as we reach our maturity, as God's time is fulfilled, God's dream of us is fulfilled, we will all stand and rise and from month to month, Sabbath to Sabbath, every moment of our lives, we will simply sing hallelujah. Hallelujah, in response to the wonder that is our God. And so the promise of the prophet Isaiah, called upon by Jesus and Paul, is that this is what God is doing. This is what is we live in throughout our life. We can see God creating and recreating us, bringing us to this fulfillment. And paradise names that. It names our experience of that. Paul calls it the new creation. All different words describing this sense of a relationship that will not end at death. And as you hear me say all the time, you know, you know, you know, with death, 
our lives have not ended. They've only been transformed, right, as our funeral liturgy says. So Jesus talks about this in, in the parable of uh, Lazarus, the parable, you know, the rich man and the poor man, where uh, you, you know, he, he, you know, Jesus in his parable describes two different experiences, you know, uh, where, where the rich man goes, where? You may remember? He goes to Gehenna and, and he's complaining about how come I got that? You know, and this poor dude who sat outside my gates that I never even saw, you know, he's in paradise and I'm not. And so, of course, and then Jesus uses that parable uh, to, to, to a call for us to live according to God's ways. And, and as I said, Paul refers to paradise several times as the new creation. And one other thing, Jesus, you'll remember, uh, talks to uh, the, the, one of his cohorts on the cross, right? The three that were there and, and one of them is mocking Jesus and the other tells the other guy to quiet down and, and Jesus, uh, uh, and he says, Jesus, pray for me. And then Jesus says, hey, dude, you're going to be with me in paradise or some sort of translation like that. So Jesus talked about that. What I want to emphasize is that paradise is not a, a, some new zip code in the clouds. One of the concerns I have whenever we read this passage from Thessalonians is that we sort of get the fifth dimension. Some of us who can remember that rock group, you know, you know, you know sort of up, up in the air and you know, the balloons and some kind of things like that. Because the language refers to that and, and in a lot of our literature. We think of heaven and paradise as some place in the clouds, which has nothing to do with what the Bible says. That is some sort of cultural thing we've invented, but scripture doesn't imagine Jesus, God resurrecting us and sending us to some new place. He imagines God redeeming creation. And so that's why we pray, as we will shortly pray, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Let thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, right? Um, so like Gehenna, Paradise is a place in the realm of the dead where one remains known to God and continues in relationship with God while one awaits the second coming. So let's unpack what Gehenna is. Uh, in, in, so Isaiah, in that passage, the last sentence of Isaiah says this. So these people that I just mentioned who, who are the righteous ones, who have, who have uh, I want to define that righteous now as those people who embrace the covenant that God has given us, who live and strive to live as best they can according to the covenant that God has given us. Those people, they're the ones who have gathered uh, and, and, for, and who will have this ongoing relationship with God. But at the very, the last sentence of the prophet, he says, and that, and those people will gather at Gohenna and they will see the corpses of the people who rebelled against me where their worm never dies, where their fire is never extinguished. And they, meaning these corpses, will be a horror to everyone. And so in the prophet Isaiah, he's describing a place known as Gehenna that is a place of God's judgment, a place where the people who had not, who had rejected God's covenant with us, uh, stay in the realm of the dead, but you know the worms never stop consuming them. The fire is never extinguished. And so we get this metaphorical language from prophet Isaiah. Now what is Gehenna? Gehenna actually is, is a transliteration in the Greek uh, for, of the Hebrew word for Valley of Kinnon. Valley of Kinnon. Um, and it actually was the boundary marker, sort of like the boundary marker between New York and Pennsylvania. You know how, you know how uh, your mapping software says, welcome to Pennsylvania? Well, the Valley of Kinnon was uh, a marker that said, you have now left Judah and entered into the land of the tribe of Benjamin. Right, it was a it was a marker, but what happened there was very important in ancient times uh, under King Ahaz, one of the Jewish kings, was one who rejected the covenant of God. 
He rejected the covenant of God, and instead he, he sacrificed, made sacrifices of um, sacrifices to uh, the god Molech. And he, and he made these sacrifices there in this valley of Kenon. And here's the thing that's challenging to us. The sacrifices he made were children. So they were sacrificing, executing babies and little children as, as though it was an offering to, to God, but not to the God Yahweh, to God Molech. And so this was a horrific place where there were all these corpses in Jewish memory remembered. Prophet Isaiah remembers it. And so it was a shame, and it was a shame, a place where, where uh, we, we particularly manifest our rebellion against God. Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah in two places, points to that place and names it as a place of the particularly intense wrath of God. What a horror it is to God for us to have so misunderstood God's desires to us that we offered up sacrifices of children, right? So that's where Gehenna comes from as a metaphor to us. It's what it is. Um, and, uh, and so that leads me to the question of, of the Easter hope, because Paul says that we're to live as a people with hope. I've told you, and I encourage you to go back and listen to the Easter sermon, we talked about how God deals with our sin as a timeout, a very long timeout, and that death terminates our fleshly minds and our fleshly bodies that have this virus that we call sin. So I encourage you to go listen to that. Uh, and so Paul says that God gives us the, the new creation, not when we die, but while we're alive now. So if you have been baptized, if you've been given the Holy Spirit, you've been given this gift of a spiritual mind that coexists with your fleshly mind and God is about the process of transforming that spiritual mind as you live. And so we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Uh, and, and Paul also says that God will give the gift of our spiritual bodies, as I said, at the later of our death in Jesus' second coming. I was listening to something by my mentor Stanley Harawas the other day when he, when he talked about hope. What is hope? So Gene and I were talking about this. What is hope? What does it mean to hope? And, and I want to distinguish between a Christian understanding of hope and what our society often thinks of as hope. We use that word to really to, to, to denote a sunny optimism. I mean, optimism, a sunny optimism. You know, like just no matter what happens, be happy, be cheerful, right? And we call that hope which has very little to do with a theological understanding of hope that we receive way back from Aquinas and others as, as a theological practice, a theological virtue, right? And, and Harawas was reflecting on this fact, and, his, and, he, and he points out that, you know, Aristotle and, and Plato uh, had no, cons they, didn't, they didn't even enlist hope as a virtue in their description of the virtuous life. Hope wasn't a virtue, but for us, it is. For us Christians, it is. So why is that? And he, and he reflected on what hope is. And he, and he talked about a book that he read from a guy who was a shepherd. He, he told the story of how the shepherd was laying asleep one night and just looking up at the stars and, and, and have his, had his, you know, his flock before him. And he, and he just lifted up this joyous prayer, says, I, this is, I could have no other than this life. The shepherd's life is for me. This is the life. This life is sufficient for me. And so what, he, what this guy wasn't saying was, oh, my shepherd's life doesn't have any challenges. I don't have to worry about wolves that are going to consume my flock. You know, I'm not gonna, I don't have to worry about being sick or any of that. No, but this life of a shepherd 
was sufficient for him. And Harawas's point is that is what hope is for us. When we say that this walk along the way with Jesus, this, this life that God has given us that has this promise of, of a relationship that will never end, even with our death, well, hope looks like our accepting that and embracing that and saying this suffices. Sasufis, right? And saying, this is sufficient for me and all I need is right here. And so walking in the way of the Lord is, will be sufficient. It'll give me everything I need to live and I will find joy in that life. And therefore there's this confidence. Um, you know, when we, have, when we act such a way that we carry on with our lives, uh, a confidence that God will cause our stories to end well. No matter what happens, no matter when the wolves come, we have this confidence that in spite of the thing that's before us, God will cause our stories to end well. And the resurrection is key to that, right? And so the Easter hope I would characterize as this, us saying together, I would have no other life than this life that's based on God's promise to lead me to those still waters that we read about in Psalm 23, those still waters that transcend death when we follow the way of Jesus, when we follow our shepherd. So in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, we, we, can, we know that this is the story he would have shared with them. This was all the backstory I was giving you. You know, he, he had left them. And as you remember in our story, he had had to flee Thessalonica because his gospel news was so disruptive to the Jewish people there and the pagans there. So many people came and believed and began to follow Jesus. And it was an affront to those who were not used to those ways. It challenges them in ways that we've spoken about. And so Paul has to leave this community. Now later on, he's writing them, trying to encourage them to sustain that life, to carry on in that life. And it turns out that at least a couple of pastoral issues arose that he addressed in his letters. Uh, and so we read these really interesting uh, passages in, in his first and second letters to the Thessalonians. The first one was, if folks die before Jesus comes, will they miss out on paradise? If you die too soon, are you out of luck? You see, obviously what had happened from the way Paul wrote, someone like Susanante had died and those people who loved her grieved her passing because they were expecting Jesus to come any minute and he hadn't come yet. Uh-oh, does that mean she lost out? That's the question that Paul addresses. And this is what he says, brothers and sisters, his response to them, we want you to know about people who have died so that you won't mourn like others who don't have any hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose, so we also believe that God will bring with him those who have died in Jesus, in Jesus. In other words, participating in the life that Jesus gives as we're about to at the table here, right? We who are alive and still around at the Lord's coming definitely won't go ahead of those who have died. All right, so he's answering a very clear answer, right? Don't worry. We who are alive won't go before those who have died. It'll all be at the same time. This is because the Lord himself will come down from heaven with the signal of a shout by the head angel and a blast on God's trumpet. Now this, the, this language that Paul's using here is, is, is odd to us because we don't think in those terms, but for contemporary Greeks, and people in the, in the Greco-Roman Empire at the time, it would have been very familiar because what he just described is what's known as the perusia, the thing that always happened whenever, this, whenever Caesar entered a town like Thessalonica. The, the, there would be a shout, 
there would be a trumpet blast, and then the king would arrive. And so what, what Paul is simply saying is, when Jesus comes, he will, he will come in all his royalty, and you don't need to worry about your, folk, your, the, your loved ones missing out on it, because they will get their spiritual bodies at the same time as you, and we'll all go out there to greet Jesus and bring him home to us. Basically, pastoral letter, what he wrote. So when he says, we will be taken up together with him in the clouds to meet him in the air, he's evoking something, the language that described this advent of the Lord that we see in the prophet Daniel. So he's just quoting a familiar Jewish understanding that was apocryphal, it was, it was apocalyptic. So it was a metaphorical language. And that way we will always be with the Lord, right? So that's the first pastoral question. So real interesting question, I think, in a, in a pretty clear answer. We will all be resurrected together and given our spiritual uh, bodies together no matter when we die. Second pastoral event came up. This one you find in the second uh, letter that we have, 2 Thessalonians. Real interesting. See, there was an event that happened in history um, that... Um, Almost happened actually, uh, and, and, the, and the, they were, the Jews were very concerned about happening. And that was this: the, there was a, a uh, Caesar, an emperor who rose to become Caesar. He was the son of uh, Germanicus, who was the guy who conquered all of the German tribes, the northern tribes, the fierce tribes to the north of Rome. His son becomes, because of the political power that he got, rose and became uh, the, the emperor. And he was an incredibly evil man. And uh, he, this happened. In 39, uh, so just a few years after Jesus died, and, and at the same time Paul's at Thessalonica, um, and he decides that he needs to be really bullheaded and insistent upon emperor worship. Caesar Augustus, the August one, he, he should be worshipped. So wherever there were temples, they need to stop worshipping whatever they were, whatever they are, and worship the Caesar, right? And this happened from time to time among the Romans. But the important point is he, he um, did away with the grandfather clause that prevented this from ever applying to the Jews, which was a deal the Romans had made with the Jews when they conquered them. You can continue your worship of this. Yahweh dude, you know, they, they, they allowed them to do that as long as they remained peaceful. Well, this guy just did away with that and said, no, we're going to install a statue of Zeus, but with my head on it. And he will be, and, and this is a statue in which God, Zeus, is sitting down. And he will be, he will, he will, will install that in the temple in Jerusalem. And so whenever you offer sacrifices, it will no longer be to Yahweh, it will be to me. And so they started constructing the statue. And the Jews throughout the world were really, really upset. And they began to wonder, is this what we expected when the lawless one would come? The lawless one would come and that would, it would presage the, the coming of the Lord? Sort of like people said about Obama and Trump and every other political leader that, that you may not like, we have had this tendency to say, oh, is this the lawless one that, that presages when, when, when the, the uh, Jesus will come back? That's what they said about this Gaius. But guess what? The Thessalonians might not, must not have known it. Gaius got assassinated like in January, on January 23rd of 41. The statue was never completed, it never happened. But they write to Paul at this time and say, did we miss the second coming? Did it already happen? Thinking that this statue was gonna be there and that meant that Jesus was gonna come back. And their big concern was, did it happen? And we're still here and, we, and, it, and gee, they left us? Did we get left out? Isn't that an interesting pastoral question? 
And that's when Paul says, no, no, you, you know, uh, you know, I don't want you to be confused when you hear all these things. Because in our society, we hear this all the time about the second coming. You know, he's going to come now because there's wars in Jerusalem, right? You've heard all that stuff. There's always this, this, this fascination with it. And Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day won't come. That won't come uh, until um, Jesus comes back. And and, uh, he is the opponent of every so-called God or object of worship. And and, uh, there will be a time when someone will promote themselves as the God in place of the true God. And at that point, uh, he'll sit himself in God's temple and require worship. But the Lord Jesus will destroy him with the breath from his mouth. When the Lord comes, his appearance will put an end to the lawless one. So Paul is addressing that, basically saying, hey, like I told you before when I was there. No, it's not happened. You haven't missed anything. And, and he, then he continues and he, and he says um, that uh, it will happen with every sort of wicked deception of those who are heading toward destruction because they have refused to love the truth that will allow them to be saved. They would refuse to love the truth that would allow them to be saved. Those are the ones who will follow the lawless one. Those are the ones who will rebel and reject the covenant. And so those are the ones that need to be concerned then. And the result will be that everyone will be judged who is not convinced by the truth, but is happy with injustice. I want to point that phrase. So this will happen to all of us who are, in, are happy with injustice. Folks, I think that's one of the reasons our presiding bishop has in, is encouraged all of the Episcopal priests to constantly print, uh, preach about reconciliation, in particular racial reconciliation in our country, because we are not to put up with injustice. That our, our willingness to put up with justice is a sign of our rejection of the covenant. So Paul continues. He's dealt with those two pastoral questions. What's going to happen to Granny, who just died? Did we miss the second coming? And he says, hey guys, focus on what matters. Live now as children of the life. He says, I don't need to write to you about the timing and dates. You shouldn't be fascinated with this kind of stuff. You know very well that the day of the Lord is going to come like what? A thief in the night. I see some of you wording that, right? You know that well. Jesus talked about that, right? And so when the Romans say there is now peace and security, at that that time, sudden destruction will attack them like labor pain. So when Jesus comes, it'll be like labor pain start with a pregnant woman, Paul says. I'm not sure what that means because I've never experienced that. But some of you, I can see you're nodding your head. Yep, yep, like a thief in the night. And they definitely will not escape. And the result will be that everyone will be judged who's not convinced by the truth. So what Paul says is, so don't let that day catch you by surprise. There is no reason for that day to catch you by surprise. You know it's going to come like a thief at night. You know you won't know when it's going to come. So the, the thing for you to do is not to focus on otherworldly things and have your eyes wondering about how you can escape from this world, but focusing on how you live in this world today. Don't don't live as children of the darkness. Live as children of the light, Paul says. We don't belong to darkness. Which brings me back to Susan Ante. You see, Sejina was explaining to me how she went. There were signs that she was ill. Her family had started to notice those. She had started to notice those. But she went to the doctor 
finished her medical appointment, walked down the hall to the doctor's office, and was gone right there in the hallway like a thief in the night. None of us know when we will go. None of us know when our time with our loved ones will end. None of us know when our time on earth to to embrace the covenant of God will end. It can come at any moment for us, this death. So the question for us is is to ask, how are we going to treasure our days today as children of the light? How are we going to live? So Paul tells us, grieve, grieve as people with hope because God has provided this way that our relationship with God does not end with our death. And then he also says, but live today as children of the light, which is to say, focus on what it means to follow Jesus in every moment of your life. And this is how he ends that passage. Since we belong to the day, let's stay sober. Wearing, he names three things that I hope you will see in your bulletin over and over again. We practice these, we rehearse these. He says, since we belong to the day, let's stay sober wearing faithfulness and love as a piece of armor that protects our body and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Brothers and sisters, that's easy to say and hard to do, and that's why shortly I'm gonna invite you to the table to practice that. We hear God's word in the liturgy of the, of the word, and our responses properly to those are faith that trusts in that promise, hope that brings that, that, that light in front, that is of some future event into the present and transform the way we see our world. So we're able to say, this is the only life I would want, this following of Jesus. And then the love, that keratos, that charity that moves towards our brother, moves towards our sister, embracing them with that love that builds them up and speaks God's word of yes to them while we still have a chance to say that word. Because that time can come like a thief in the night. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's sermon, and we hope you're able to join us next week.